Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 667. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Today, once this recording's finished, once I click stop, upload it, I'm shutting down this machine and I'm going to build up a new Starship Sova hub. <laughs> Might take us a couple. Thank God, it's like every couple of weeks there now. Because let's hope it's 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 plain sailing. But like I say, once I click stop and finish all my little work here, that's it for this machine. We're we're upgrading the engines of the sofa. So I'll tell you what's coming today. Show then six hundred and sixty-seven. We have for the main fiction Worms, the Carer and His Friend by C. H. Pierce. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming to day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I said, today's story is Worms, Their Carer and His Friend by C.H.P.S. Original to Starship Sofa. C.H.P.S. is an Australian writer of weird dystopian stories. She lives in Canberra with a partner and two small children, wrangles data in a day job and also does art. Her short fiction has appeared in Aurelis, award-winning Australian writer in 2016, and the CSFG publishing anthology Unnatural Order. 
She's currently revising her first novel, an expanded version of her short story, Worms, Their Carer and Their Friend. Yes, and you can find that online. Now, this story is narrated by Will Staggle. Will Staggle lives in Tucson, Arizona with his wife, Susan, and daughter, Violet. He's a creative professional by day and a lead singer and guitarist for a post-punk band called Liquid Centers by Night and always up for a pint at the corner pub. So, Starship Sofa is very proud to present Worms, Their Carer, and His Friend by C.H. Pierce Read to you by Will Stagel The boy is sawing away at part of Worms, a section of luminous tendrils the span of his own hand with a serrated knife. He's wearing gloves and a face mask. His eyes are narrowed in concentration. All right, the boy asks Worms, pausing. His voice is muffled under the face mask. All right. There isn't a yes or no answer to that, so Worms doesn't respond. From where they cling to the bathroom wall, they wriggle their tendrils to indicate the natural line along which to cut a section. It comes away with a sticky tearing sound when the boy resumes sawing. It's unpleasant having a cut taken, but Worms bears it patiently. They've subsumed all sorts, humans, rats, spiders. They contain a multitude of qualities, and one of these is patience. The boy holds the cutting reverentially in his gloved hands. Strings of translucent slime span the cutting and the main growth, growing thin as spiderweb the further he carries the cutting. He runs a finger through the strands to break them. Worms doesn't like this part. Their tendrils squirm. The soft, vulnerable, unskinned root requires the following conditions to survive. Dark, damp, a steady diet of insects, and at least one dedicated human carer. This one small piece being carried across the apartment is going to die. The cutting is placed on a drying rack in front of the heater, next to the six pairs of work boots stacked by the apartment door and the blaring tally box. Here the cutting withers over the course of a week. Once cured and dried, the warm wort is simmered in stew or fried in spitting hot oil. They are eaten by the family for breakfasts and dinners to the sound of six lips smacking in appreciation. For work lunches, the family packs bread and cheese sandwiches. Not everyone understands, Granny Black explains, like we do. The boy is getting out of the bath, last to use the tub at the end of a long day. The water is iron black. It is almost curfew and the others are climbing into bed. He towels off and gets into his pajamas. He still looks grubby, only now the dirt is dispersed differently. Worms takes no favorites not among carers, not since the first woman who found them in the scorched earth and lived too short a time. But they do experience preference. How else would they decide who to consume, who to subsume, and who to leave alone? We used to have priests, Worms laments. They know the boy won't understand. To him the movement of their tendrils will be a sticky-sounding rustle, like bodies peeling off the couch on the days the recirculators fail and the apartment is a hot box. To Worm's surprise, the boy replies, Now you just have addicts. The boy is touching their tendrils without his gloves on, tentatively, with one finger. This is why he can hear for the first time what Worms is saying. That's interesting, says the boy. Didn't your mother and father teach you not to do that? asks Worms. How old do you think I am? The boy's face crinkles in amusement. Fifteen, hazards Worms. This carer's hairline is receding. He has at least one sharp-looking false tooth, 
and Worms wonders if he really is a boy at all. They up their guess. Fifty? The boy shakes his head, chuckling, and lights a cigarette. He only smokes in the bathroom. His family must be able to smell it, but they'll pretend otherwise, providing he confines his habit to the bathroom and makes a token effort to hide his cigarettes in the lighter. I can't see Harmon talking. We might plant funny ideas in your head, says Worms. They make an effort. They know how to act like a regular individual person, albeit one that lurks in alleys discreetly eating bugs. How's your boyfriend, boy? The boy's mouth becomes a grim hard line. The one who visits every day, prompts Worms, for the last six years? The boy narrows his eyes at Worms, exhales smoke thoughtfully, overworms his tendrils. We see how it is. No more secrets for old Worms. Not now you imagine us capable of repeating them, Worms laments. Always the way with you people. No, you only caught me off guard. I don't believe I've ever referred to that man as my boyfriend in this apartment, or I'd lose my bunk. People like us don't like people like him. People like him? Pest control workers. He makes a face that shows all his teeth, including the iron one. Worms can't tell if it's a smile or a sneer. Anyhow, I'm 27. Hardly boys, although mentally I grant we have more growing up to do. How so? The man hesitates fractionally. People say my friend and I are codependent, and they don't know the half of it. Excellent, said Worms approvingly. How is your counterpart? The man's grin takes up too much real estate in his gray gaunt face. His eyes reflect Worms' luminous light. The effect is that of a lively skeleton. He's good, thanks. He scuffs the tile with one foot. Then it's like opening up a sluice gate. He talks for five solid minutes about his counterpart, and he talks fast. Mostly it's about work, at which the counterpart excels, and snatching time together. The ingenuity of it. Imagine being one person, loving only one person, Worm thinks. It would be like having a cutlery drawer consisting of a single fork. The man gives Worm's names, but Worms explains they prefer not to personify humans uncommitted to the hive. You don't live long enough. We only get attached and you're dead. It's unbearable. They agree on placeholder titles, the carer and the friend. Sad situation, carer. Worms' tendrils susurrate around the hands in sympathy. In proximity, they note the long, nimble fingers are nicotine-stained. Worms is making the hand sticky, with translucent gel rubbing from tendrils onto fingers. The carer shrugs. It's all right. It's only that I'm no good at lying. Why not move out and live with your friend? Worms shares an idea they wouldn't actually like to be taken up on. But the thought is already out. That's the downside of telepathic communication. Worms is no good at lies either. Then you could be together and smoke as much as you like. The carer grimaces as if slapped. He shakes his head. Somewhere else. We have a rat skin and S-block now, and we see lots of young people in dorms. You've got good ambulatory legs, so why not repot? That's plants, I think, murmurs the carer. Why not be your own man? Money. The carer seems more able to answer this question once the friend is left out of it. My family and I are doing well, and it's all thanks to you. Letting us eat of you every day in return for a little water and wall space? You wouldn't believe what it saves on groceries. And you take care of the cockroach problem. Do you know, Worms, my parents tell me that you brought down the price of the apartment? Even before the downturn, my olds couldn't have afforded to buy here. Worms likes how amazed the carer sounds. We are aware that we put off several buyers who came to view, 
they admit, in addition to the real estate agent. She made inquiries with the Sunshine Pest Control, filmed us on a vid call. They declined to attend to quote. Worms finds that funny. The carer finds it funnier. He cackles until there are tears in his eyes. His iron tooth is the right canine and looks peculiarly sharp when it catches Worms' luminous light. Worms is familiar with the crack of the carrier employing the tooth as a bottle opener and occasionally as a can opener. As if sunshine pest control wheezes the carer in between chuckles could do a single fucking thing about you. The carer works for sunshine, rather for a subsidiary of the parent company, the cleaning and waste management arm. So does the family. So does the friend. Worms approves of Sunshine's structure, pervasive throughout the city, by turns self-advertising and insidious. Of course, a megacorporation is a poor substitute for a hive. The carer takes up the plant mister from the wash basin. He parts a section of tendrils, sprays, then rakes his fingers through to disperse the water. He inspects for dry patches before moving on to the next section. It's like combing a child's hair for lice. While the carer works, he tucks his cigarette behind one ear. It's no small job. Worms carpets the entirety of one bathroom wall and is encroaching on the ceiling. As the carer cleans up, he smokes while leaning back against the wash basin, exhales thoughtfully. I don't see why, Worms, I should have to break up with my family and you in order to live with my friend, the carer complains. He's always at me about you. When are you going to wake up and see that your hanging garden is a deadly parasite? Did you know the wormwort has killed three people this year and subsumed six? And it didn't make the news feed? And it's only fucking January? Nothing wrong with the way we live, is there? If I were to move in with my friend, I'd insist on taking a cutting and growing you there. But he just keeps repeating, it's a deadly multiform hive mind parasite, sweetheart. Like that's the end of the argument, and I'm the difficult one. It's him who will have to come around. He's so stubborn. He's raising his voice, catches himself. When he speaks again, it's stifled to an earnest whisper. Apart from that, we get along famously. Worms can see how that's a problem, but they can't help feeling some pride at their importance, for better or for worse. A sharp knock sounds three times on the bathroom door. Almost curfew. Lights out, you two. You all right in there? Calls Granny. Fine, Granny. You better not be smoking again. All he has to do is say no. Instead, the carer stubs out his cigarette in the sink and pockets it for later, while it's still sizzling. On the other side, his family are talking louder and louder, getting angrier and angrier. The carer calls back, no, he's not smoking, but by the time it's true, it's too late. Now when he opens the door, it's a scene. Father's shouting. It'll take a great deal more to calm them. He really is bad at lying, thinks Worms, as the door slams shut. The cool bathroom wall reverberates. Worms considers the carer's problem through the week as their latest section dries on the rack, in front of the continuous nudes feeds on the tally box. Couple of ways we see out of your predicament, says Worms thoughtfully next cutting day. As before you say anything, remember we are 300 years old, 2,000 cumulatively. For example, if we were to subsume you, we could count ourselves, not 2,000, but 2,027. That makes us wise. See? Okay, says the carer. Those are neat numbers. You know, I'm not really unhappy with my lot. There's no problem to solve. Sometimes when life, we're rounding up, snaps Worms. We could sub or consume your family. If we subsume them, they'll live until the world's end as part of the hive. Generous offer. We don't take on just anyone. Of course, if you want us to kill them, we can do that. The apartment is yours and everyone is either happy or dead. Neat resolution, yes? 
We're surprised you didn't think of it yourself. No, no thank you. For a three-century-old hive mind, yes, 20 cumulative, you're not very bright. What did we miss? Love or economics? Both said the carer quickly, so quickly, Worms wonders if he hadn't been thinking of just the one. It takes all six of us pulling together to keep up with the mortgage repayment. Unless I could find five open-minded lodgers to participate in our arrangement, that means selling, and that means losing you. Do you know, Worms, most people can't see how wonderful you are. Their loss. The carer shrugs, smiles. Our gain. You do go on, says Worms. The carer falls silent and goes about checking if the cutting drying by the heater is ready to eat. We didn't say to stop, says Worms. But the carer has to put on gloves to handle them while in view of the family, and the carer can no longer hear. We don't see why you're so set on your friend, Worms remarks offhandedly, when the carer brushes past them getting ready for work. Isn't he some work-obsessed suit who won't have you to live with him? Why not choose someone who loves you more, sufficiently to make you happy, and someone, while you're at it, who your family can love? Are we talking about just the one person, jokes the carer. But he doesn't talk to Worms for three full weeks after that, so Worms learns that they have said the wrong thing. The carer performs the evening cuttings in silence. After three weeks, Worms apologizes. They do their best to disregard the cutting and the three-week coolness and resume communications. We've been consigning a portion of our considerable mind power to your situation. You know why the wormwort eaters consume the raw root, yes? Sure, they're addicts, the carer shrugs. I'm sure you're a real trip, Worms. One most don't come back from. In effect, it's not psychoactive. It's very real. People only think it's psychoactive before they can comprehend the experience of being integrated over a three-month period into the superintelligent hive mind. Some people, explains Worms a little stiffly now, rather like it. The carer finishes taking the cutting, holds it in his hands. Still, he doesn't yet snap on his gloves for the sake of his family and go out into the main room. You and your friend might join us, consume the living root, enjoy not so much telepathic communication as transcendental oneness. After three months, you will be subsumed and your original bodies will die. Right, says the carer. You won't miss your bodies. A brief pain. Then plenty of bodies, plenty of consciousness harmoniously integrated. You'll never be lonely again. You'll never feel the pain of trying to integrate with your partner and being stopped short by the limitations of your forms. You know how it is with bodies. No matter how you talk to someone or touch them, you can't truly commune, can you? You can't know them inside and out, walk around in their skin. Right, repeats the carer uncertainly. His eyes flick to the closed door. I suppose you can't. The carer looks embarrassed. Worms can always pick them. I happen to like bodies, says the carer. We've no shortage if you're attached to that sort of thing. I always keep six in the ambulatory hosts on the go at any one time minimum, in a range of species. That's our philosophy. The carer shakes his head. He pulls on gloves to keep up appearances and opens the bathroom door, cradling the sacrificial piece of Worm's body. No, I'm very happy, he repeats several times. He stares down vacantly at the cutting in his hands. The cutting looks back. When do we get to meet your friend? The carer looks out from the bathtub. The water is black. He stretches out a hand lazily to touch the wormwort with one fingertip. You know him. He waits in the stairwell every morning and he drops by most nights. We know his voice. We know the rustle of his coat and his cough in the stairwell. We know he drinks his tea in a half minute while standing in the doorway. When is he going to walk in here? 
I admit he doesn't overstay his welcome. Cautious type. Real button-up. But he can be friendly after a few drinks. The carer smiles and immerses himself completely in the water. Then he rises, shaking his wet hair like a dog, and climbs out. He curls his toes into the bath mat. I'm afraid he doesn't approve of you. How can your friend not approve of us, demands Worms, all preemptive triumph, as we haven't yet met. For a horrible moment, Worms wonders if they and the friend have met in another form, another life. They sift through their memories for all the things they have done which might be construed badly by a human, but there is too much. Two thousand full years of memories could be anyone, anything, and they give up. Lucky that the care has broken contact temporarily to dress. The carer pulls on his pajamas. Look, I'll tell my friend he can meet you, if you promise not to writhe and switch colors and startle him. Worms says nothing. That doesn't mean that he'll look at you. Certainly he won't touch you. It's his work, you understand. He is sent to the commune to clean up biohazardous contaminant discreetly. He's extremely good at this. The carer beams as he relays this in vicarious pride. He says I ought to come along sometime and see how the attics look when they're ascending. The care gestures with both hands as his enthusiasm grows. Contact broken. Worms can't protest. He says I'd throw up, and I'd never eat wormwood again, and I'd get rid of you. He offered to bring over the flamethrower from work. Sweet fellow, if misguided. I shut that down, let me tell you. The care pats Worms. Worms speaks fast. Don't, Worms cautions. Don't ever go to the commune. It looks worse than it is. You can only see what's happening to the physical body. You can't see the consciousness as becoming part of something greater. They ask us to do it. They want to ascend. The carer's hand strokes warms repetitively, up and down the quivering tendrils on the wall. My friend won't harm you. How could he? Nobody knows how the hell to do it. Will you just try to show him that he's wrong about you? Not right? Very well. We'll represent our species, Worms' tendrils bristle. Though we don't see why we should waste our time re-educating small-minded men. All we care about is that you understand. We only subsume those who ask. I offended you, murmurs the carer. I'm always putting my foot in it. Was it the part about the flamethrower? Worms isn't done. We do check they want to join us, and we keep checking right up until the last flicker. We kill the others. We listen. We're not some sort of pest. Worms does not expect to like the friend. He proves to have a face not in an arresting frown and a relentlessly professional manner. He fails to remove his overcoat in the stuffy apartment, though he does hang up his hat. Doesn't speak an unnecessary word, but makes sure everyone has their glasses topped and their chairs tucked in. Several times he thumbs the carer's hand discreetly under the dinner table. The carer practically vibrates in joy at his attention, like a dog being stroked behind the ears. In his quiet attentiveness is such love and such protective anxiety. Worms decides they would like both for the hive, the love and its bound fellow, the fear, the carer and the friend. The family serves wormwort stew, slopped onto seven white plates and creeping to their edges. They praise the inventor, bow their heads, and dig in. The friend pushes his fork into a cube of wormwort. He regards it suspiciously, holding the fork aloft. He bites. How long have your family had worms? He's smiling, but it's grim. The friend is trying to stop himself from spitting out the morsel, screeching out the chair and bolting out the apartment door. Either that or throwing open the door to the bathroom and taking whatever weapon is holstered under his coat to the thing clinging like a living pile carpet to the wall. Bless, thinks Worms. What's its impact on the property? 
Is it a perk or a liability? Say, theoretically, one of you moves out and you're advertising for... Worms does know the face of the friend. Eventually they place it. They have seen it more than once. The first occasion was six years ago through the eyes of two hosts in the commune as their bodies lay dying, entwined and grasping. Worms had thought nothing of it at the time. Another silent bystander with his hands in his pockets and a curled lip of horrified disgust. Of course, the friend would only have been scoping that day. The work he had to do would not have come into play until several days later, when the host consciousness had been assimilated and the vacated bodies were ready to be cleaned up by sunshine. After dinner, the carer takes a case of dew pearl from the fridge, cracks the caps with his teeth. He hands out bottles to his family while they move to the couch and turn on the news feed. Just going to introduce my friend to Worms, announces the carer airily, backing away. Won't be five. Worms thinks the friend only trots so readily after him and lets the bathroom door click shut behind them in the near darkness because he presumes there is a pretext. To Worms' indignation, it is a pretext. A lie. They are ignored, forgotten, and worse, being untouched, they can't say a word about it. As the door clicks shut and the noises of the tally box muffles, the carer presses close to the friend to kiss him. With both deft hands, he is unbuttoning his uniform. The friend turns his head away. Then he places the flat of his hand over Kara's face and pushes him back like some overeager dog attempting to lick his face. The friend rebuttons his uniform solemnly. Sorry. They both speak at once. Past, aren't I? The carer apologizes. Slink back, hands in pockets. I know how you are, but sometimes when you've had a few drinks... I'm difficult, says the friend flatly. He is looking over the carer's shoulder to size up worms. I'm fully cognizant that I'm difficult. Not a bit of it, lies the carer gallantly. Worms is not sure the friend appreciates just how hard the carer has tried to lie and how effectively, by his modest standards, he has pulled it off. His face, of course, betrays him. Worms' light catches the hungry-looking face, his liquid eyes, but the friend is not looking. The friend pushes past the carer with a blind pat on the shoulder, barely listening. He is marveling at Worms. So this is the pure root, he says. Never seen the stuff without a host skin. I understand it requires particular conditions. Interesting, aren't they? This is my friend Worms. The carrier leans casually towards Worms and sticks his hand directly into the tendrils. The friend bursts out. No, don't. Then he clears his throat, tries again composedly. You ought to wear gloves and mask. Basic work health and safety. Thought I taught you that. I guess I didn't listen. The friend shakes his head and takes two cigarettes from his pocket. I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. I ought to report this sort of activity. You aren't making my job easy, and if you aren't careful, you're going to make criminals of us both. Interesting, thinks Worms. With a rustle of their tendrils, they observe to the carer. Picture is a bit more complicated than the one you sketched out. Oh yeah? How so? The carer draws himself up. The friend lights both cigarettes and puffs away, eyebrows raised. Breach of regulations, he explains. You want a list? I can do it verbatim, but it'll take 10 to 15, and I won't get away by curfew. And your family will suspect one of us being a bad influence. Sorry, I wasn't talking to you. Oh. The friend falls silent. When he's gotten both cigarettes started, the friend reaches over and places one between the lips of the carer. He is watchful now. Usual expression of an outsider not privy to Worms' half of the conversation. Worms explains. We were going to ask the nature of your friend's work for the company but it doesn't take the intellect of the hive to surmise that he is not only pest control, but he is operating at a higher level than yourself. Management, admits the carer. Policy, whatever the hell policy is. 
This appears to be a joke between them, because the carer and his friend exchange a look, and both laugh shortly, reflexively, little near humorless barks. No, continues Worm, susurrating. What strikes us is that your friend doesn't do kissing, at all. Why do you imagine that is? I never asked. The carer sets his jaw. Didn't want to make him feel bad about it, did I? The friend leans against the wash basin, smoking. Can't hear Worm's side, of course. Probably thinks they're corrupting the carer brain with their lies. Outsiders generally think that. A kiss happens to be our mode of transmission, human to human. Most direct method being consumption of the living root. Of course, you aren't infected, so on your friend's part, it's pure suspicion. A kiss? The carer startles and laughs. Worms, you're a fucking fairy tale. The friend waits long enough to be certain that the conversation, to which he's only partially privy, is over. Then he snakes an arm around the carer's waist and murmurs in his ear. We'll talk tomorrow, before work. Little job I want you to do for me. And when that's over, how about we get drunk and... Yes, agrees the carer instantly. His eyes are liquid bright. The pair finish their cigarettes and return to the main room. On the way out, the friend, his hand lingering on the carer's back right up until the door opens, gives Worms a grim nod of acknowledgement. Worms waves their tendrils back. Presumably he gets the gist. We'd like you both to come and join us, says Worms afterwards, in the bathroom saying goodnight. Perhaps when you are both very old, that's when most people finally decide we're right. We're an immediate and viable alternative to dying. The carer thanks Worms, but is careful to agree to nothing. On the one hand, scraps from your friend. Worms shifts their tendrils, first one section, then another, to mimic the human gesture. On the other hand, everything including unity with your friend. How will you choose? The carer stifles a laugh, puts a hand over his face. Be aware that we are not only trying to persuade you, but to persuade you to persuade your friend. The carer laughs freely now, open mouths. Good luck! You're a trick, Worms. He ruffles their tendrils. He raises an arm on his way out before heading to bed. The carer comes home after an argument. Worms knows this because the carer says nothing during the cutting. He is silent and glowering during dinner, and pushes at the dried cooked wormwort with his fork, though he makes himself eat so as not to be ungrateful. Worms watches from where they die slowly on the rack and listens from the bathroom. Granny asks the carer how his day had been, and the carer hunches over his dinner, looking gray enough to crumble into ash. All right, Granny. Yourself? All right, Granny replies. She bows her head low to shovel food from plate to mouth. After lights out a curfew, when the five prone figures are snoring, the carer creeps down from the top bunk and pads barefoot into the bathroom. The bathroom is lit only by the luminous glow from worms themselves. Your friend? inquires worms. They extend their tendrils a short way, the furthest they can reach in sympathy. The carer looks very far away, standing in the doorway. Think I might have fucked up, confesses the carer in a whisper, closing the door quietly behind him. You'll patch it up, says Worm, struggling to think of comforting things they have overheard humans say to one another. This family from whom they have learnt most are not a sterling example. Don't you both fuck up all the time? Yes, but this time I'm afraid it may not be possible to patch. I don't know why I can't be content with what I have. The carer leans against the wall and rests his head against Worm's, as if on a friend's shoulder. He runs his fingers through the hanging curtain of tendrils repetitively, like stroking an animal's fur. He is not wearing gloves or a mask. If you're going to do that, cautious Worms, you'd better close your eyes and keep your mouth shut. The carer twists his head towards the curtain of Wormwort, opens his eyes, and opens his mouth. After some interval, Worms creeps in, 
They move as inexorably as pooling water. You have three months to reconsider, Carer, Worms explains in the morning. The lights switch on with the recirculators. Bodies stretch and groan. There are two specialists in the sector who can remove us from a host. We will give you names, addresses, if you ask. Be aware you will be increasingly... Uh, not be. I'll, I'm going to retake from be, be aware. Be aware you will increasingly experience becoming part of a democracy of minds, and that will influence your decision-making. We think for the better, but... All right, says the carer, clearly not listening. He is whistling. He seems happy. Having slumped down to the cool bathroom floor in the night, his head resting against worms, he rises. At the wash basin, the carer brushes his teeth with a rag and salt. We didn't get to live three centuries by telling just anybody how to kill us, Worm says. When we offer, we are in earnest. You have choices. Be consumed, be subsumed, or be rid of us. Consider them. I already know how to kill you, says the carer. His voice sounds odd because he is still occupied in cleaning his teeth. He spits in the sink. Then he rubs a circle in the black-spotted mirror in which he examines his face for any stray white tendrils of wormwort. It's a mobilization followed by a week-long period of exposure to light, dryness, and heat. Of course, we'd have to apply exact conditions to all your constituent parts simultaneously in order to exterminate you. Theoretically, that would do the trick. The carrot checks the inside of his mouth, accidentally pricking his finger on his iron tooth. He sucks on his finger briefly. Then he pulls back his eyelids to check there, too. Just as well, it's only your hand-picked hosts who can map across the city. Neat system providing you're clever and careful about who you let in. Worms has nothing to say to that. Anyway, they can't. The carer doesn't touch them again. The carer wanders out scratching himself and leaves the bathroom door open. Worms can hear the family rising and breakfasting. All six move between the main room and the bathroom to dress for the day. The carer returns, doing up buttons of his sunshine cleaning coveralls. He ducks in just far enough to twist his head towards the warm wart and wink. Worms can smell themselves on his breath, cured and fried into the hash they make for breakfast. Don't worry, Worms. We've given this a great deal of thought, and we know what we are doing. The friend is outside the apartment door. Intermittently, his cough resounds in the stairwell. Quiet, relentless smoker's cough. Worms wonders what they will tell the friend. How to exterminate us, or join us? Or, most difficult trick, how to leave us alone? The door slams behind the carer on his way out. Whistling and footsteps recede in the stairwell and mingle with the sounds of the other commuters. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. There you go. Huge thank you to CHPS and Wilson. Thank you indeed. It's nice to have you back on the sofa, lad. Nice indeed. So, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I hope that you are safe and well. I have just wrapped up teaching a summer graduate course on Star Trek, so Star Trek has been on my mind even more than usual for the whole summer. And one of the things that I discussed with my graduate students that it occurred to me I also wanted to talk about with you is the way that Star Trek uses literature to punctuate a point, to add to its meaning, to tap into already understood themes and symbols. And so I thought I'd talk about that a bit today, because it's been an ongoing trend in Star Trek since the very first Star Trek series, the original series, in the 1960s. I thought I would start by talking a bit about the recent 2020 Star Trek Picard, the first season. We are expecting season two in 2022, and I'm going to talk for a minute about some general big ideas and big, big points in Picard. But if you haven't seen Picard and you plan to, don't worry. I'm not going to give away any massive twists or surprises that are embedded deeper in that full arc of the season. But I thought using Picard as sort of a starting point, I could talk a bit about how Star Trek traditionally has used literature. So not giving away anything that isn't given away very, very early in the series. I'll describe Picard this way. With the mystery of the late Data's daughters, Daj and Soji, at the heart of the story, Picard touches on many aftermaths, including the aftermath of cataclysmic disaster for the Romulan Empire, the aftermath of the synth attack on Mars, and the subsequent Federation ban on scientific experimentation related to synthetic life forms. The aftermath of Borg assimilation, for those who have been assimilated. And even the personal aftermath of Picard's resignation from Starfleet. Now, I mentioned that sometimes Star Trek uses literature as a shout-out, as a punctuation point, as a connection to influence and inspiration. And, for example, Picard does this several times, and, and the most notable that I can think of offhand is in the character of Agnes Gerardi, the the doctor, the scientist, who was working on synthetic life forms, on androids, on essentially people, and I'm going to use that term intentionally, like Data. Well, she, while at Picard's home, pulls out Isaac Asimov's The Complete Robot, which is, of course, a shout-out to the fact that we wouldn't ever have had Data 
one could argue. Certainly, this debt has been acknowledged in Star Trek without Isaac Asimov's writings about robots and the three laws of robotics. So they're a nice appreciation for how Star Trek is building on pre-existing science fiction foundations. Just a little punctuation there to remind us of that backstory of our robots people too, <laughs> coming from, in fact, Isaac Asimov. But there's some other things going on in Picard that are punctuated, underscored, or even expanded by understanding the literature that is referenced. For example, Picard's mourning of Data and his dedication to Data's daughters reflect, number one, that those who serve together, a cause bigger than themselves, become family. And two, the lifelong importance of loyalty and friendship and courage. And three, the desire to be a force for good in the struggle against evil. And these themes are also embodied in The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas from 1844. We see Picard give the Three Musketeers to, and in fact read it to, the young and impressionable Elnor, the Romulan, who is a trained Kuat Milat warrior and who follows the path of absolute candor. Elnor, or as my students call him, Space Legolas, is deeply influenced by reading and rereading and thinking about The Three Musketeers. And it's worth pointing out that The Three Musketeers is an ongoing theme in Star Trek. In the original series, Mr. Spock calls Mr. Sulu, when he is wielding his sword like some great dashing hero, D'Artagnan, a reference to the youngest, most dashing of the Musketeers. In The Next Generation, Reginald Barclay creates a hollow program of the Three Musketeers. He uses the likenesses of Captain Picard and Mr. Data and Geordi LaForge as the three main Musketeers. And later in Deep Space Nine, Miles O'Brien and Worf reminisce about that hollow program. And remember, in particular, Geordi LaForge as a Musketeer. And in Star Trek Enterprise, the star of Star Trek Enterprise, the wonderful Porthos the Beagle, is in fact named, again, after one of the Musketeers. Oh, and speaking of the themes of loyalty and courage, I would be remiss if I didn't point out real quickly that Una McCormack's novel Picard, The Last Best Hope, which came out also in 2020 and is the prequel novel that sets the stage for the first season of Star Trek Picard, explaining much of the backstory, introducing many of the new characters. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. And in that novel, she repeatedly uses a particular work to order Picard's thoughts, to reflect his position, his understanding of the challenges he faces. And that is the old English poem, or actually the 325-line fragment of the old English poem, The Battle of Malden. She has Picard 
reminding himself of lines from the Battle of Malden to essentially give himself a pep talk, to remind himself of what his task is and to give himself courage. For example, repeating to himself the lines, Thought must be the harder, heart be the keener, mind must be the greater, while our strength lessens. This is very poignant, I think, given not only the fact that he is, in the novel, a speaker not only for what is right, but for what is ultimately, in a sense, a lost cause. And also, of course, Picard is aging, and we see that most certainly in Picard season one. And they lean into, the storytellers lean into, this notion of reckoning with our mortality, with aging and illness and death. In a sense, Picard, as he is shown at the beginning of the season, holding up at the family vineyard and writing history, it's a parallel in a way to the way Kirk was becoming part of his antiques collection in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Lots of similarities, aging, regret, lost family. But two big differences. Picard really is old, and he didn't get promoted away. He gambled with his career in the hopes of being able to complete his mission, to evacuate, to save the Romulans, and he lost. And he's also mourning Data, and mourning at the same time more than Data. It is tragic, but it is also, in a sense, the human condition. There are two literary points here I want to underscore. First, we have a new and very compelling character, Captain Cristobal Rios. And Rios is shown with his own traveling library, Rios is a reader, and a reader of philosophy. Quite a lot of those books are philosophical tomes, and there have been essays written online just about the different titles we see in that library. But for my purposes, I want to point out the one that we see him reading most often, and that is The Tragic Sense of Life from 1912, written by Miguel de Unamuno, a Spanish poet, and philosopher. And the core argument of this work is that life is tragic because all humans know they will eventually die. And that notion, that awareness of mortality is a through line in Picard, I think. Mortality is something that's always there, and our awareness of it is intrinsically human. Mortality is a part of what makes us human. And of course, asking what makes us human is part of the whole Star Trek and, in fact, science fiction project. But there's a flip side to that, and that is there's also the theme in Picard that death is a gift, that being finite is part of an important part of what makes us human. And that's a theme that should resonate with anyone who is a reader of J.R.R. Tolkien, given not only Lord of the Rings, but the Silmarillion. And many of his works underscore the fact that it is the gift of humans to be mortal. And I don't think there's any <laughs> um, coincidence that the creation of Elnor and the way he's portrayed and certainly the way he looks 
in Picard is a nod to Tolkien's work, knowing what we know the wise choose to be mortal instead of chasing immortality. Choosing to be mortal, to be human, is a big message of Picard in the end. And I'd like to wrap up talking about literary influences on Picard by mentioning the first teaser we received for season two, which will be coming out in 2022. That teaser showed different artifacts in Picard's home and then ended by focusing on one particular text very intentionally so we could see that book title very easily. And that was Milton's Paradise Lost, the epic blank verse poem from 1667. Milton's attempt to make sense of a fallen world in a Christian context. Now, I'll admit I go back to Paradise Lost quite a bit in my own work, but I read it in a romantic, capital R, kind of way. I read it in the sense, or in the frame, that uh, Mary Shelley did. And the reason why is because Mary Shelley used Paradise Lost greatly in her first great work of modern science fiction, Frankenstein in 1818. This story of a created being who seeks a relationship with the creator and finds himself, in fact, abandoned. And the creature in Frankenstein reads Paradise Lost and identifies with, with Satan because he could have been Adam. He could have been loved of his God, his creator, but he isn't. And ultimately he finds, as I think Mary Shelley did, Satan to be a compelling character. The product, in a sense, of a kind of metaphysical deadbeat dad, if you will, which certainly is what Victor Frankenstein was, a creator who then did not follow through with his obligations to his creation. It's interesting now that Picard is looking at synthetic life forms, life forms that didn't ask to be created and then were created, and now what do we do with them? Not unlike Frankenstein's creature. Well, it's interesting given that the notion of synthetic life is a theme or a plot point in Picard that we now see Paradise Lost brought back again to our attention. And I will point out that Paradise Lost has been used also throughout Star Trek. Back in the original series episode Space Seed, which introduced us to the character of Khan Noonien Singh, portrayed by Ricardo Montalban. At the end, Khan, talking to Kirk, refers to Milton choosing to be exiled with his people rather than to face punishment. And that's a play on the it is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven quote by Lucifer in Paradise Lost. And in fact, Kirk and Scotty talk about that. And then later in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, when Khan returns, we see Paradise Lost in the library of the Botany Bay, that small collection of books that clearly Khan has been reading and rereading there in his exile. 
Paradise Lost also happens to be the title of an episode of Deep Space Nine, dealing with rogue elements in Starfleet attempting a coup. So seeing Paradise Lost there in Picard's library, in the trailer, or the teaser, I should say, for the second season of Picard, is a tantalizing clue. So all of this is to say that Picard, like really all of the iterations of Star Trek that came before it, uses literature to underscore its meaning, to suggest more meanings, to make references, and even to just give shout-outs to influences on its own storytelling. And what's more, Picard knows, or the creators, the storytellers of Picard, know the history of Star Trek's use of literature. And so that repetition, too, creates these lovely through lines through Star Trek storytelling. So I hope that was of interest to you. I could go on and on. Just Captain Rios's library could be a whole segment. But I just wanted to tip my metaphorical hat to something I find really fun and interesting and enriching in Star Trek storytelling. And I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we get together again to take another look at genre history. Stay safe and well, my friends. Thank you. And there you go, Amy! I'll tell you, I've got Amy, right, honestly, just before we shut down the, the engines there, I've got Amy running around getting me toiletries. <laughs> Amy, I said Amy, because I've tried, you know what I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got this hipster kind of look there now, I'm all shaved with a little bit on the top hair, but I'm growing this kind of hipster beard and been watching all the YouTube videos of the kind of the balms and the lotions and there's a certain brand. <laughs> Can I get it over here? I've got Amy running around. <laughs> get me toilet, please, Amy. Thank you very much. <laughs> right then, look after yourselves. Take good care. It is good night from me. Thank you for listening.
catch myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.